Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today we've got the last live podcast from the Pepperdine Bible Lectures with my man, Don McLaughlin. Um, But before we get to that, let me tell you about my friends at Podbean. When I was a church planner, I was trying to find a way to get my teaching online, and I stumbled across the Podbean website and turned out that they were everything I thought they would be, a very easy-to-use, all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. I would simply upload the sermons right onto Podbean. They would send them over to iTunes, super easy. And then when I decided years later to start a podcast, I decided to use them as well. Uh, It's a great company. They've got this new feature now where you can actually record teachings directly on your phone And then using their app, which is good for uh, an iPhone or for an Android, you can record it on your phone and then post it directly from your phone. So you don't even have to have fancy equipment like we use at the old podcast. Um, So check them out, podbean.com backslash newsworthy for a little discount. And I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Here's Don McLaughlin from Malibu, California. When... um when Mike said, yeah, the, uh, the last session is going to be Friday night at 9 o'clock, uh, I was thinking to myself, what exactly did I do wrong to Mike uh, to make him think this is uh, a time to do something? But you know what? There's no one I'd rather be here doing this with than Brother Don. I'm so excited to be with we, you. We can give you a round of applause to welcome you. So well, welcome, Don. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate all of you. And the bus is parked outside. Thank you very yeah. much. I, I think last night they thought you were going to be there. And that so I it. think that's what happened. They were like, is yeah. it dawn or is it rain? Which night? Couldn't figure it out. Yeah, I got confused. Now, really what's going to happen is there is a legendary amount of energy that you have. Years ago mm. when I was an intern at your church, the year was 1999. Um, I, yep. I, I kind of don't want to admit that, but I just You did. were four. I was four years old and my mom would drop me off. <laughs> Um, <laughs> with a lunch. With a lunch. You, we would see you go through the office, and it was almost like you were transporting, because I didn't understand, like, you'd be going this direction, and then you come back, and keep, and you were always moving, and you have, like, this unprecedented amount of energy. I was a test case for an early Fitbit. Okay. Yeah. So Very I, secretive. Very secretive. Okay, well, I was wondering if, if that energy can be squelched by the full Pepperdine Bible lectures and getting to, this is midnight, your time zone. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Okay, so you're going to carry this thing then. Yeah, we're ready to go. Okay. Um, one of the things that I, I get to do is talk to mm. authors about their book. Mm-hmm. And I've done a few interviews at this point. Uh, I think I've done over 200. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have never done an interview with a person about their new book mm. that has the title of that new book already on their shirt. Yep. So you have created a, a, a new level of expectation that I'm going to carry over to everyone. Okay, if they don't bring a shirt, they're out. But you've been wearing this on your shirt for like, for like as long as I've been wearing black shirts, you've been wearing love yeah. first shirts. Well, what happened, I think, to me was, you know, most of us, we look for words to try to express our life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we say I'm at a loss for words, it means that I really want to find a word that expresses something, and I'm unwilling to just put any word to it, you know? Hmm. And so I would look at life, and I would think, man, you know, what was wrong with this situation? What was wrong with this relationship? What hijacked this marriage or whatever? And I, I began to wonder about that. And so 
I think it was a convergence between that wonderment, that wonderment, uh-huh. that wonderment. And then I come across 1 John 4, 19, where it says, you know, we love because he first loved us. And I thought to myself, if God loved first, that explains why his love is so meaningful to us. Mm-hmm. And that's what started prompting me to think, well, what if I would want to live like him? Oh, okay, give me the year. When, when did you first have this kind of aha moment that... The oh, epiphany? Yeah. 2013. Okay. You know, I started into it and, um, well, okay, what happened was, you know how people talk about the unconditional love of God, mm-hmm. right? I'd preached on it forever. And it kind of dawned on me one day, hmm, I wonder if that's like really a thing. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, and if everyone in the world believes in the unconditional love of God and you start questioning it, I don't know how smart that is. Well, I, I started reading that in the book and I was like, Don, what's going on here? Right. What, like, this is what gets you farewell tweets, like questioning things like that. That would be correct. Yeah. And so I think I would have had a better shot at questioning the virgin birth on this one. But what happened was I start in Genesis, seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, my yeah, wife, I, I really do agree. Yeah, my would. wife is here tonight, and she knows my method. So I start in Genesis. I go all the way through Revelation, and what dawns on me is we wrapped a word around one of the most important concepts of all time, but we wrapped the wrong word around it. I'm not asking. I'm not actually asking people to change your vocabulary, but what I realize is what God's love is is it's unlimited. Okay, mm-hmm. it's unlimited. He he does say that and. And it's relentless, and that's true, and it's eternal and infinite, but it's not unconditioned. Okay. There are conditions to his love, and he is the one that says it. Like even in the Exodus story, he says, you do understand that my loving faithfulness, man, I mean, it's forgiving. It's to a thousand generations, you know, in Hosea. Oh, you know, I could never give up loving you. I could just never do that. And he says in Hosea 11, and the reason is because I'm God. So that pushed me over, you know, into the famous, most famous passage, I think, is that 1 Corinthians 13. Mm -hmm. And it just says, here is what love is. Here is what love is not. Mm -hmm. It is kind. It is patient. It isn't rude. And I thought those are the conditions. With God, he never unhooks from the conditions that actually define his divine love. Hmm. And humans do unhook. We do. So when we hear the phrase unconditional love, we think no matter how much, if you've unconditional love for me, no matter how much I screw up, you're going to continue to love me. That's what we think. You're not taking that off the table. No. Not at all. But you're just saying it's connected to something. There are conditions. Yes, there are. So, for instance, one of the reasons, like, let's say, for instance, we have a friend and they go through whatever, yeah. right? They go through whatever. And so they, you know, their life goes off the rails and mm-hmm. we're hurting because mm-hmm. we love them, you know? And they, I'm, it, you know, I said friend, Luke, you know what I mean? It could be a brother, sister, mom, dad, prodigal yeah. son, whatever. Yeah. So, like in the story of the prodigal son, right? The kid goes off the rails, And the dad just can't rest because his love for his son is so intense, right? Yeah. So when the son comes home, we see this picture of God's love. It's just like, boom, you're home. The other, the brother is like, no, we're not, we're not 
no, he can't just come home like this. Exactly. So we love the story. So we say to our prodigal mother, brother, sister, dad, son, whoever's prodigal in our life, no, 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 you can come home. How do we know that? How do we know it's okay for them to turn on a dime, middle of the night, and cry out to God and that he'll respond? How do we know that? It's because God never unhooks from the conditions that he has set for himself. And so you're turning conditions as a good thing. That's right. That's right. The goodness of God. Yes. And that's a good thing for us. Yes. Okay, so it... In your book, you say one of the reasons that uh, the world calls the church hypocrites is they know that we're supposed to be this kind of people. We're supposed to love. Yeah. You, you tell a story later in the book uh, about your wife, Susan, who's with you uh, driving on the, uh, what is it, the 400? In, <laughs> I feel like I'm in California because I just called it the 400. Yeah, no Georgia, one does that. Georgia 400. Yeah, yes. and, you're, and Susan says... I wish everyone knew how kind of a person you were. Yeah. Because they don't see that when you're driving. No, it was awful. We had just it, moved to Atlanta. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, like, uh, I, like I shared in this, the, I could have saved the, the film crew on Mad Max it's, yeah. all the money. Just put a GoPro on my truck, and then we'll drive through Atlanta traffic. Yeah. So I'm a wreck. And Susan's reminder to me was, you know, you do realize that you're almost a different you, <laughs> Right. Yeah. And the reason we can tell our family member who's messed up in life, turn around to God, is because God is never a different you. He's never yeah. a different God. Yeah. So he never unhooks from what makes his love so dependable. Mm-hmm. But the, the church doesn't always reflect that. So that's where you say the hip, hypocrisy yes. is rightfully leveled against the church yeah. because we don't do that. Yeah. And so what you're calling for is... Let's go back to this love thing. Yes. So the thing that hit me, there was a couple of things that hit me, Luke. One of them was, let's, let's quit fighting with people who are telling us we're unloving. You know, let's how do quit. We, how do we do that? Because when they say that to us, I'm on the defensive. Yep. I'm not a hateful person. I'm not a rude person. I'm not right. a bigoted person. How, how do I not respond out of that? Yeah. How do I not react out of my defensiveness? Yep. I, that's beautiful. So I think a lot of times what we would say is the three most important words are, I love you. Okay, I get that, but not in this case. In this case, the three most important words are, tell me more. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, I hate the church, man, tell me more. Well, they're just so unloving. That's got to hurt. Tell me more. Well, they're all hypocrites. Man, I, 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 tell me more about that. Because what, they, what they're not used to is someone that would love them enough to hear them out. You know, love yeah. them enough to care. You know, uh, I don't remember who said this, but this guy made this comment. All atheism starts with a moral question. Hmm. You know, if God is so good, yeah. why have such horrible things happened? And you realize they may have been abused as a child or it may be global. What is going on in Syria if God is good, mm-hmm. right? So someone's upset at God. God does not need us to defend him. He needs to, us to engage like he engages. So someone says, you know, I just think God is a horrible monster. Tell me about that. Because if you keep saying that, eventually someone will get to the hurt that's, yep. that's, that they're wrapped up in. I, I've heard it said that, uh, all theology is autobiography. Mm. It's like I'm, I'm telling my story and I'm juxtaposing it upon the divine. That's so, so rich. If, so if you want to know God is, 
hateful, you go, well, someone's been hateful to me. You yeah. know, my mom, my, my dad, my coach, whoever. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, you can't disconnect theology from autobiography. Yeah. And I, so I love that idea of let's eventually hear the story because yep. usually there's an issue behind the issue. Agreed. Right? Agreed. I remember talking to a guy one time in, in Oregon where I grew up, and his hatred for the church was just, it bordered on weird. There was so much hate, you just like, okay, this is not about the church. Yeah. Like you said, it's about you. Something has happened to you, mm-hmm. right? Well, by the time he got to the bottom of it, you're like, well, that really was a horrible thing that that person who claimed to be a Christian did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're right. You're right. I wonder how representative that is of, of, of all Christians. But that doesn't take away how horrible it is what happened to that person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you've got to listen to get past that global hypocrisy to get down to the hurt. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, like corporations can't wrong you. Individuals can. Yeah. And so when we superimpose like an individual experience onto the corporate, like, for example, I've got uh, someone I know who's um, uh, got a kid um, uh, with some special needs. And mm. this church is not equipped uh, to love this family the way they should. And the way they've treated them, uh, it's awful. Yep. And it would be easy for the parent of that child to go, church is awful. Yes. The answer is, the church isn't awful. You've got a, a really terrible group of people who are running a church in a very ungodly way. Yep. But often we can't uh, divorce those two when right. we don't allow people to do what you're saying. Right. Is to say, okay, I want to listen, I want to acknowledge, I want to hear, I want right. to give you space to grieve your loss and to, your pain. That's so rich. Man, I'm glad you used those terms. Something that's kind of struck me, uh, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, one of the things I knew I had to do in the book was have tangible ways to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I did is I chose, you know, in our nation, uh, we have this really deep history of racial tension. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of years, you yes. know. But of course, we have, through social media, we're a little bit more aware of mm-hmm. it. It's not that it's new. We're just more aware of it. Yeah. And so one of the things I began to realize was, well, what if I could use racial tension and kind of in a juxtaposition, the discussion about love and how that applies to race? So one of the things I realized was, as a white person, I'm not used to representing race. What do you mean? Well, like, okay, for some of our, some of your listeners, um, the, the uh, bombing of the Marah Federal Building uh, in 1996 with Timothy McVeigh, and, yeah. uh, for some, they, they won't be as familiar with that. But that was the worst act of terrorism on domestic soil prior to 9-11. I mean, it's a horrific situation. Yeah, yeah. Carried out by a, one primary guy and two associates, all of them white. Yeah. I've done the research. Although it was a diverse group of people working in that federal building, the majority of the victims were white. Okay. No white person in America thought to themselves, oh, no, everyone will think white people are terrorists. Because yeah. we didn't associate skin color as saying, uh-oh, if the terrorist was white, boy, everyone's going to look badly at us. Mm-hmm. We also didn't feel that we were in danger for being white. 
Yeah. The fact that the majority of the victims were white, white people didn't think, uh-oh, now there's a target on our back. But what I've realized, of course, you know our church, living in a very diverse church, living in a very diverse community, I realize that's not shared. No. So black and brown people, uh, like our son, will readily recognize, okay, that you realize I always represent race. Yeah. And there's a really funny uh, book uh, by uh, Baratundi Thurston, um, How to Be Black. He's hilarious. But he walks you through what it means for someone to walk up to you and say, well, what do black people think? What do you mean for 50 million of us? You, you, want, you know. <laughs> yeah. So as a white person isn't used to representing race, then when someone says, why are all white people like X? Then as a white person, I want to say, well, I'm not. I want to be the exception. Okay. Mm-hmm. Instead, if I say to someone, tell me more, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Tell me your experience. What have you gone through? And let me, me represent, represent white. Yeah. So if you could take that, Luke, and, and, and think about, well, what would it mean for me to represent church? Right? Yeah. So I'm having lunch with your family you're talking about, and they're telling me how terrible the church is, and why is the church this, and why are Christians like this? Because their child is not being treated correctly. Rather than me trying to say, well, I'm not like that, and my church isn't like that. What if I just said, tell me about that? Hmm. That's got to hurt. It's got to be rough when you have such expectations of Christians, and they don't seem to really care a lot about those expectations. Allow yourself to represent and be empathetic. And uh, that has a huge healing component to it. Yeah, it does. Uh, speaking of the, uh, racial reconciliation, racial justice, uh, you talk in the book about uh, after some of the Black Lives Matter marches and the yes. Blue Lives Matter uh, kind of response, there was uh, a gathering in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and you were one of the dozen or so, is that it? Uh, <laughs> white Christians who were there in a, a room that was hundreds of people? 600. 600, okay. And what happened when it came time for the clergy uh, to speak a word into the situation? Okay, that was an eye-opener for me. You know, I'm there. When I first moved to Atlanta, I joined the Black Ministerial Association for five years. And I did that because I thought, if I don't, I'll never get to know, I probably will never get to know these guys. Hold on, tell me about that. You just joined the black ministry? Yeah, it was kind of a Did you funny sneak thing. in or something? Well, I think the first day I was there, they thought I was a lost pizza delivery guy, I'm pretty uh-huh. sure. But well, I knew one guy. Uh-huh. And so he introduced me, and then that's how our friendships grew. Hmm. And uh, so I, that's something that was very meaningful to me. And we still have those friendships to this day. So when this broke out, you know, you kind of remember that very tight train of events with... Um, Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, and Dallas. Yeah. All of it just so traumatic for our nation. Well, Orpheus Hayward, who's this great leader at the West End Church in, in Atlanta, called me up and he said, I'd like you to come over and we're going to host this and we'll have the mayor's office there and the town council and uh, Black Lives Matter and Urban League and NAACP. Um, I'm, I'm free. Oh, like a police, the police were there, uh, some police trainers. And we're just going to open this up and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a very powerful, emotive conversation. And people were really pouring out their thoughts. And everyone got to speak. Everyone got to speak. So this is a, a lengthy gap. Three hours. Yeah. Three hours. But what I noticed was when it came time for clergy, 
what I noticed was some of the community activists headed for the door. And my heart sank a little bit, but not my respect. I knew why they were headed for the door. The church has not been as responsible as it needs to be in regard to justice. Mm -hmm. They've learned not to look to the church for the leading edge of justice. Mm -hmm. See, and back in 1963, King even said, we talk about this famous uh, uh, speech where he said that 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour. We keep reading the same speech. This is the same speech he said, you know, I'm not suggesting uh, that the world should wait on the church. He said, had the church done what it needed to do, maybe we wouldn't have all the problems we have. But the society is not going to wait on a moribund church. The society had to move on. Mm -hmm. And that cuts me and you to the quick. But what I realized that night was they're just not used to the church Grit to the grind. I am, I am going to stay in this thing. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you no matter what. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to regain our standing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to do it by being there. What does that look like at North Atlanta? Okay. The well, church that you're a part of. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me introduce that with a thought. When, when, when the, after Trayvon Martin was killed, Black Lives Matter was a hashtag. It was a social conversation, mm-hmm. but it didn't really take off. It was only after Michael Brown died in Ferguson that it took off, okay? And one of the fascinating things in Ferguson, if you read the book Faith in Ferguson, it's very helpful. Uh, one of the things that they uh, talk about in there is that the activists did not wait for the church to move. Mm-hmm. When the church did move, it didn't take over the activists, and one of the things the activists noted is, you know, we, seen the, we saw these signs on television of, you know, you have these activists and you have these police in riot gear. Yeah. And one of the pictures in the book is the clergy came around, got in between the police and the activists, got on their knees and started praying for both. Hmm. That, that was awesome. Yeah, that's good. It affected the police in a positive way. It affected the activists in a positive way. And the clergy had a place. It was on their knees in the middle of that conflict. So when I think of North Atlanta, I think um, several great things. Uh, I think about our small groups, you know, and how we function together in our small groups, intentionally diverse. I think about our if tables. I think about our be the bridge tables. Um, I think about our language. Um, if leadership isn't integrated, the church isn't integrated. Hmm. It's a power, it's a power distance struggle. So I can be in a staff meeting like one recently where there are six ministers in the room and I am the only white male. Why do you think uh, leadership has to reflect the kind of diversity you want in the church? Yeah. Be- because what has happened over the years, and I'm speaking as a white person, white people are used to being in positions of power. They're used to having power. But they, they, many people don't think they are, so they don't realize it. You know, so we have a tendency to deny it as well. But what I recognized was, if leadership positions are not filled by the diversity you want in the church, the culture doesn't change. Yeah. The culture stays with the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. But if leadership shifts... The culture becomes more of what Jesus was looking for this morning. Some, some churches would like to get there, but their constituency doesn't reflect 
that diversity. Mm-hmm. And so they say, how can we be more diverse? Our leadership doesn't have a group of people to draw on to be in leadership positions. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you kind of work around that? Well, we started uh, 20 years ago. And now, uh, again, you remember these days because you were there early. Our I was four, was, though. I was four. It was, yeah. Oh, that's right. You were four. And so you it, were, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I forgot about that. And your Jetson's lunchbox. Um, so yep. what we had was, <laughs> sorry about that, but we had a church that was 95% white. Yeah. Right? And so, what, I mean, what do you do? So I actually uh, talked to our elders about this who are wonderful, and I said, what we'll have to do first is we need to go to the families we have that are black, sit down with them, find out what's going on with them. What does it feel like to be black at this church? Just ask. Mm-hmm. And, and allow ourselves to grow into these relationships. But uh, that was 97. That very next year, I said, what we need to do is, we got to be honest all the way. Talk about it all the way. Talk, talk, talk. Don't ever stop being honest about what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I would go to these black families and say, I would like for you to be a part of our next leadership training. Mm-hmm. I'm asking you to walk with us in this. So that long term, as our church becomes more reflective of our community, if you will walk with us on the front end, it will change the, the nature of our church. Yeah. So I went to them. I told them what we were doing. I asked them to join us. And then I asked some of our white leaders to join us in that same process. And my wife is here. She could probably correct me on this. But I think we did that kind of a plan for about three, or f- three years in a row okay. to help people grow into it. And so I think that was a huge factor. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so now your church is more reflective of the community. That way in the leadership. <laughs> yep. Leadership equals people, people on the stage equal to people in the seats. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so now that you're a church that is more participatory in yep. the conversation. Yes. Uh, did you have uh, Ruby Bridges last couple of years yeah. come out and speak? Last summer. Uh, she spoke after the, um, the shooting in South Carolina. Didn't yes, she, she did. And, and what did she have to say? Oh, it was a tough summer, wasn't it? She came to be with us at the end of July. Mm -hmm. And um, Ruby's a wonderful, amazing person. Uh, She's very wise, very thoughtful. And so when I asked her about this, and she said, well, she said, think through it like this. When Dylan Roof goes into Emmanuel Baptist in Charleston, sits in a prayer meeting in a chapel, maybe like this one, for an hour, and then just kills nine people, you know, and that's, you know, okay, that's evil. But she said, but the person who murdered my son, her son, was the same color as my son. So that's not about skin. That's also evil, you know? So one of the things that she did there, she, she said two things at once. She said, it's about evil if it's the same color, but it's also about evil if it's different color. Mm-hmm. And what we have to get through our minds is, as believers, if we are not intentionally building reconciliatory relationships across whatever barriers in front of us, we're not following the reconciler. Yeah. Yeah. And, and having the language to say it's evil 
uh, is almost essential. And yes. you know, there's some conversations that you know people want to eradicate the word sin, and uh, <laughs> you, you don't want that. And what's what's really sin? But if you just try to use the word, well, you know, that's a wrong thing when you're describing something as horrendous as like rape. Yeah, you realize you're morally bankrupt. That's if ridiculous. you can't have a word to say that's evil. Uh, that it has byproducts not only in how uh, you describe things but in how you understand things. And to be able to say it's evil no matter if the person is Timothy McVeigh killing a bunch of white people or it's a white person killing a bunch of black people, it's still still evil, it's still hate. Um, What do you see the correlation between love and hate? Okay, the thing that kind of fascinated me there was love does not need hate. It doesn't. That would be the equivalent of saying that in order for a child to feel loved by its parent, the parent probably needs to mistreat the child. Well, that's ridiculous. So love doesn't need hate. And and another thing we think about is in, in kind of this eschatological way of God looking at the world, God isn't looking at an eternal future with hate in it. Yeah. So the clock is running on hate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we got to remember that. And that's good news, but we got to remember that. So love doesn't need hate. Hate is an expression of God's risk in creating humanity. How so? When God creates beings that have his nature in them, they can choose what they will love, which also means they can choose what they won't love. Mm Mm-hmm. They can choose to not love well, and they can choose to hate, Mm -hmm. right? So this is part of our issue. So I think something that we've got to remember is my choices actually do matter. Do you remember um, a few years ago, this book came out, Thinking Fast and Slow? Oh, Kinnaman. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, something very helpful there, Luke, was he said, you know, thinking fast is kind of this impulse and thinking slow is more this thoughtfulness. Well, I thought about it in a spiritual light. I don't think we'll ever fully overcome all of our impulses. I don't even think that's expected. Yeah. But in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, where it says, we take every thought captive yeah. and make it obedient to Christ. Yeah. So some woman who has been through this horrendous experience of abuse, and when a man gets too close or speaks a certain way or, or even brushes up against her, Oh, man, you know, her whole body may feel like convulsing. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many whatevers, years, sessions, prayers, conversations would ever help to so much that she would ever lose that impulse. Mm -hmm. But what she might have discovered already, even someone that's listening to you tonight, she might be able to say yes, but that wasn't the final word. Yeah. You know, God did a work in my life, so the impulse is still there. Mm-hmm. But I was able to work with those impulses, and Christ overcame the final word in those impulses, right? Yeah. So if someone grew up in a very racist situation, their first impulse might be very racist. Yeah. But there's great hope, right? That there's, there's redemption there. Yeah. I, I was talking to uh, our friend Fate the other day about the... Uh, uh, Harvard implicit or the implicit yes. bias test where yes. where like we make these snap second yes. second decisions and it reveals to us that yes. that we all have these biases yes. inside of us yes. 
and they might continue to be there, but you do the work yeah. and you let God work in you and you can learn to have this, a, mm. a reformed attitude about it. But it's yeah. not like a split second thing. It's this right. long-term process. And you have um, a quote in the book from Dr. King about forgiveness, mm. that it's not like this one-time thing, but it's a choice. It's, a, it's this way of life. An attitude. Yeah. And so it seems like this is, you know, the way of love isn't natural. It's this thing that you allow yourself to be formed into. Yeah. That's this way of life that, that isn't just momentary, but it's like your new existence. Yes. Yeah. Something that struck me, and I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead of you, but this is part of my process. You okay. jump ahead. Okay. <laughs> it's your book. <laughs> part of the process for me was, okay, uh, just everyone that knows me knows I love the church. I just do, yeah. you know, and, uh, I, uh, and I've, I've had the wonderful blessing of being a pastor for 35 years and I still love the church, but the church often behaves poorly mm-hmm. often. I mean, not like kind of, or sometimes yeah. it's just regular, right? Yeah. So what I started thinking was, okay, is there something that formed formed our way of thinking mm-hmm. that might actually be something we could do something about. Mm-hmm. So I start going through the ancient creeds. Now, I love history. I'm crazy about history. Yeah. So I go through the Apostles' Creed. I go through the two versions of the Nicene Creed. I go through the Athanasius Creed, the three big ones, the three ones that set the trajectory for Christianity. Yeah. And uh, all of them, of course, rooted in the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the experiences of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, something kind of crazy and I'll never forget when I went home and I told my wife, I said, I got to show you something. This is the craziest thing in the world. The word love is not in any of them, even once. Yeah. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. It is not in the Nicene Creed. It's not in the Athanasius' Creed. And I mean, like, you, you know how it is. I got down to where I am. I'm like reading the thing backward to make yeah. sure I'm not to missing. To the word love is in there somewhere. It's not in there. Yeah. And so I was like, well, this is crazy. So I call some of my church historian friends and I'm like, what do you guys think about this? And they're like, oh, well, you know, the word, you know, the love of God. Are they is- surfers? <laughs> Just about. <laughs> they kind of went nuts on me on this. The first conversation was not as good as the second one. Okay. okay? okay. So they were a lot of resistance initially. Uh-huh. And they were like, no. No, the, the, the love of God is in every phrase and it leaps off the words of the yeah. creed. And I said, yeah, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. You are a church historian. You are a liturgist. You are a theologian. Mm-hmm. So you know to think, yeah. you know, I believe in God, God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. You know to hear the love of God in the creation. And yeah. you know, I believe in Jesus, you know, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, you know, love, love, love. Yeah, but the deal is, is the word love is not in there. It, yeah. And if you read the Athanasius Creed, which I'm very careful in the book to mm-hmm. yeah. really detail this out, yeah. four times he says, if you don't believe this, you're lost. So the creed is the difference between heaven and hell in their thinking, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you're looking at that creed and what's ever codified in there is the ball game. Well, love isn't codified yeah. ever. So what struck me as I started thinking about church history, uh, and this, this is not in the book, but this is a reference, uh, casual reference, is the 30 years war. You take 1618 to 1648, Europe. Okay. 
This is the worst religious conflict in world history. In 30 years, 8 million people are killed. Okay? What is fascinatingly awful about this is all the combatant entities are quoting the same creed. Yeah. Yeah. So you could be a creed-quoting Christian on Sunday and Monday through Saturday, go kill other creed-quoting Christians. That's a problem. Yeah. And so you connect it in the book to Jesus' response to when he's asked, what's the greatest command? Yeah. He doesn't give one, he gives two, yeah. which is? Yeah. Well, this is fascinating, isn't it? So I love this. Uh, a couple hundred years before Christ, the rabbis have kind of blended the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and the neighbor love mandate of Leviticus 19.18. So in the famous story of the Samaritan, what we call the Good Samaritan, when uh, he says, what do I got to do to have life, right? And mm-hmm. Jesus says, well, hey, man, you're a lawyer. What, how does the book read to you? And the guy says, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, or heart, soul uh, mind, and strength, yeah. and love your neighbors yourself. So he, he makes them one command, yeah. right? Which if you go over to Matthew 22, Jesus says that's the first and the greatest, mm-hmm. right? So what struck me was if Jesus said, this is the first, Mm-hmm. and the greatest, and you leave it out of his creed? It seems like it's kind of a problem. What, what, what were we thinking? Yeah. And so it's implied that you should love, but it's never explicitly put in there. It's not codified. Yeah. That's the key. And so what's the problem with that? Well, if you think about like, like, um, like if somebody says, what do I got to do to be saved? Right? Yeah. Okay. So someone says, well, what do I got to do to be saved? And if you said to them, oh, well, man, you got you to love God mm-hmm. with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm-hmm. And let's spell that out, man. You're going to have to love God with all your emotion, with all your cognitive skills, every fiber cell vessel in your body. Mm-hmm. You've got to love God. And, and, and that love of God has to turn into love for people. And Jesus says that's neighbor and family and brother, sister, and enemy. So let's just stop right now. How do you feel about every fiber of your body, you know, heating up yeah. with the emotion of love for your enemy in a benevolent way? And someone's like, I don't think I'm on board with that. Well, then you're not going to be saved. We don't say that. Yeah. We're like, oh, man, you know, you know, you need to hear the gospel and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And, you know, churches have different ways that they think about baptism. Right. But, you know, baptism and communion are going to be in there somewhere. You know, however they line them up, you know, they're going to be in there. I'm just stunned that we didn't pick up that. And Jesus says, you do. I love what first John three, when he says, or. Uh, yeah, First John 3 and 4, he says, you do realize that if you see your brother or sister in need and you don't help them with whatever you have and so on, you do realize the love of God isn't in you. And if you say you love God and you don't love your brother and sister, you do realize you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I, you don't need to know Greek to get that. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of like love should be first. Bang. Yeah, and so there you Someone go. should write a book. Yeah, they should, which should be love first, not to be confused with love fest, which would be a whole different thing. Oh, you did read. So I was in, 
I was actually worried. You even, you even doubt that. That hurts my no, feelings just a little bit. I was reading, wearing this shirt. And I was in uh, Midwest Hipsterville, which, of course, is Minneapolis. And anyone listening who travels, they know the Minneapolis airport. That they have more iPads in that airport than Silicon Valley and skinny jeans. And so I'm standing there in do line. Do you wear those skinny jeans just to fit in with them there? I do. Would you? Oh, that's yeah, good. Oh, absolutely. Good for you. Okay. I have one pair. Okay, so yeah. you're there where... So I'm there, I'm standing in line in a Delta line, and everyone that is uh, a Delta SkyMiles person, they hover waiting for the call, and then it's like just a mad rush. It's, it's like a stampede at a soccer game. So uh, here I am, I'm standing there, and this guy is staring at my chest, and it's uncomfortable, right? <laughs> and finally, I'm just like, and he's like staring at my chest, and he says, it says love first, and he's like, so what is it, some kind of hippie commune? <laughs> and so I said to him, it says love first, not love fest. And uh, <laughs> then he said to me, well, what is that? And I thought, hmm, all right, so how do I get my theological brain to have a you know, 28-second conversation with this guy? And God gave it to me. I said, just like this, in this intonation, I said, it's how I want to live. Yeah. This is how I want to live. And that's the one that stuck with me. It's how I want to live. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I think that's a good one to end on. Yeah. It's how we should all live. Yeah. Don, thanks for the book. Thanks for the time. Uh, Go get the copy of the book. It's a good one. So thank you. Luke, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, if you... uh Right now. All right, friends, hope you enjoyed that one. Also, don't forget our sponsor for this episode, Podbean, the all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. It's the easiest way to get started in podcasting. And Podbean's mobile app for Android and iOS allows podcasters to record and publish podcasts right from their phone. So go check it out. We'll see you next time. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.